Welcome to episode 11. My goal today is to shed light on the role of surgery for diastasis recti. There's an underlying belief out there that if you struggle with issues related to abdominal separation, that your options are rehab or surgery, and that surgery is kind of the easy way out. You see, as a physiotherapist myself, I really struggled with that message. I did everything I could through rehab and exercise, but I just couldn't fully address this huge hole I felt in my whole abdomen. My guest today is Dr. Demianchuk, an extremely knowledgeable and personable surgeon in Vancouver, Canada, with over 20 years experience and a clinical assistant professor at the University of British Columbia. When I finally came to terms with surgery for my diastasis recti, it was him I wanted to consult with because his name always comes up as the go-to surgeon in the physio community. He's known for his collaboration with physiotherapists and the modifications he's made to his surgical techniques to optimize functional outcomes for his patients. From the first time meeting Dr. D, as he'll tell you to call him, I could tell he understands his patients, their goals, and their hesitations. In this episode, we talk about why you don't have to choose between physio and surgery, how he has modified his surgical techniques through the years, The difference between terms like tummy tuck, mini tummy tuck, muscle repair, liposuction, abdominoplasty, why there are so many different techniques amongst surgeons, what you should look for in a surgeon, the patients he won't do surgery on, patient satisfaction after surgery, and why the heck this surgery isn't covered by our medical system. At four weeks post-op myself, So far, I have no regrets, and I'm actually quite proud that I did this for myself and my long-term health. I hope this episode helps you answer some of the questions weighing on your mind, because I know it's a huge decision. Welcome to the Pelvic Floor Project. I'm your host, Melissa DeSalles, a physical therapist in Kelowna, BC, Canada, and founder of Mommy Berries, an online platform to support pregnant and postpartum women. I'm here because too many women fear their body during pregnancy and then feel let down by their body after baby, and I want to help change this. My goal with this podcast is to take my personal experience as a mom of two, my knowledge as a PT, and everything I've learned from my clients, and then sit down with other professionals, not only to provide you with evidence-based information, but maybe, just maybe, spark some changes by bringing our professions together. I'm confident we can make some headway if we come together to look at women holistically. I'm curious to see what changes this project will make in my community and I look forward to have you join me on this journey. A reminder that content in this podcast is intended as general information only and should not be considered medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Now, sit back and relax while you listen. I know this will be difficult for you because you have 3,450 things to do, but I challenge you to put yourself first during this episode. Okay, thank you so much for taking your time, Dr. D. I really appreciate um, you doing this. No problem. So I have been, uh, for those of the people that are following along, I've been pretty open about my journey as a physio navigating diastasis and my decision for surgery. And I thought it important because I think somewhere in the messaging, it comes across that people should choose physio 
And if they fail, they should go for surgery. And we all know that that's not always the case. Everybody has different choices. Everyone has different goals and there's different reasons for choosing one or the other. Obviously, as a, as a physio, I'm biased in that I think rehab is wonderful in that after we have a baby, there's so much our body can do for us if we give it some focused attention. However, in, in my own case, I just wasn't able to get to where I wanted to be. I found that there were holes in my strength, there were holes in my function, and um, I've learned a lot in the process, just learning, taking courses, reading books, and your name comes up a lot as a go-to in this province for surgery. And that's why I wanted to reach out to you in the first place, because um, obviously I took it very seriously. If I was gonna make this choice, I wanted to go with the person. And I think in the end, if I was to summarize kind of um, how I heard your reputation was that you worked closely with physios, um, you know, not only before, you know, people would see physios before and they'd be referred to you or that you would refer on to physio. And I wonder if you can just start by talking about maybe your interpretation of why that is, or how did you get to be known as that person? Oh, that's a great question. Thanks for the introduction and the opportunity to talk to everybody. Cause I think that uh, this is a area that is poorly understood, uh, both uh, mostly amongst physicians, to be honest. I think it's really been led by physiotherapists um, and the medical community is just catching up. Uh, it's a condition that's poorly understood amongst family doctors. If you called your OB and said, you know, I have an abdominal bulge or muscle separation, they were like, that's normal. Don't worry about it. That's part of pregnancy. Good luck. And I, and I think that's not really the right message. And I think if you talk to your family doctors, about it, they're, they're not educated in terms of what the functional limitations are with significant muscle rectus diastasis. So, you know, my journey began probably over 15 years ago when, uh, you know, family member uh, had multiple pregnancies in close succession and uh, had significant functional problems afterwards, you know, really was uh, functionally incapacitated, went from being very active, you know, uh, in her early 30s to being functionally limited in her late thirties and just with having three kids, despite a ton of effort, you know, and it wasn't due to lack of effort. It wasn't because they weren't trying or a good diet or personal trainers. And they just found I have a problem. And, and it, 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 it sort of pointed out to me that I don't think that's really normal, you know, or it's not really acceptable. Um, <clears throat> so in my and just to ask you a quick question, yeah. sorry about that. Like, yeah. did this person, like they look different too. Like, would you say that they, oh, they, absolutely. they not only look different, but they yeah. would describe that they, they felt different. Their body felt different. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of the common symptoms that I, I've, I, I had, we heard what then, and, and that people tell me is uh, certainly they have, um, they have an abdominal doming, you know, they have a doming of their stomach, which they didn't have before. And people say, Oh, you know, congratulations on your pregnancy, but you're already two years postpartum. Um, so they have doming. Now, doming is, you know, cosmetically, it is what it is. But the problem is, is that it's an indicator of, of uh, muscle diastasis. They also found there's a lot of central midline vulnerability. So they felt very, very vulnerable in the midline. If someone touched them there or pushed on there, it felt very uncomfortable. They also had terrible core strength. So despite a ton of effort, they would hit to a plateau very quickly. And, and they couldn't break the plateau. So if they're doing core workouts, trying a plank or isometric exercises, they would get to 20 seconds, 30 seconds, up to maybe a minute, but never beyond. 
despite effort. So they would hit a plateau in terms of exercise. And then the back pain became a real big factor where they had a lot of secondary biomechanical back pain. So either hip flexors or IT band or lower back because the back was just strained all the time, trying to biomechanically compensate for their, for their loss of core strength. So really there was nothing in the medical literature talking about this. This was, this was not talked about. Um, and so we, you sort of go beyond. And so you started talking to friends who are physiotherapists and very quickly, I connected with a physiotherapist who works out of uh, White Rock, and I'll, I'll drop her name here. Diane Lee is a, is just a, a world leader in the mm-hmm. in and understanding of core physiology, you know, mm-hmm. and, and and really connecting with her opened my eyes to the world of of uh, abdominal core biomechanics uh, and the interplay of of muscles in the in the core and the abdomen. And so working with her we were able to look at a, a large number of women who had core muscle dysfunction. And I think what was happening with her is she was seeing clients who had uh, muscle diastasis who she couldn't rehab, you know? And, and, and so we came up together with a, a plan really of, of what does she need biomechanically and what can we offer surgically? And so a little bit for about 2005 to about 2008, we did a large number of patients and studied them quite closely. Uh, we looked at them before, during, and after, uh, and then we were able to come up with a surgical plan that made good sense. And to be fair, there were some patients, I think, that we overcorrected. You know, we learned as we went. We were sort of trying, we were a little bit being trailblazers, taking sort of known techniques, but modifying them so that they worked in the way that we needed them to work. Um, some people we over-tightened, some we under-tightened, um, and then things got refined and improved upon. So... Uh, and then we, we looked at a lot of the roles of physiotherapists around the time of surgery, you know, and I think really it came down to looking at this condition as uh, I'd say like an orthopedic operation, you know, totally. this was a mechanical failure, just as if, if you had blown out your knee or had a ruptured Achilles tendon, there's a surgical solution. There's a period of, of, uh, of healing uh, and then a, a time for rehabilitation. So that's how we look at this in sort of those, those three phases. Um, and there are some times where you have a mild condition where you might not need surgery. You might say, look, this is, this is within the rehabilitation scope. And through dynamic ultrasound or by proper examination, you can say, look, look, there, this is a potential for a good amount of rehab. Just like if you've got a, maybe a partial tear of your Achilles, you might not need surgery. You know, a walking boot and some rehab will do it. But other times, if it's a complete tear or your ACL is busted open, um, you need a surgical repair followed by, you know, healing and then rehabilitation. And then we looked at the timing of rehab. You know, when should we start? You know, we started initially looking at people at three months post and we thought, let's move it sooner. And then we started doing it at eight weeks post. That worked pretty well. Then we started at 10 days post-surgery and found, well, that's just too early. It didn't work at all. So it's been a bit of a trial and, effort, uh, trial and error that way. But I think in the last, last sort of seven to eight years, we sort of got it down to a system that works pretty well. Yeah, I think I like that. That was one of the things you said to me when I first came in, you talked about, I remember think, almost thinking like, maybe he'll just tell me I don't need this. It's almost like that's what I was looking for is that mm-hmm. he'll say, oh, you don't need this. But I remember you saying, um, you don't you don't need to have this surgery, Melissa. But what you'll notice is that when you go skiing with your family, they'll do the blue and black runs. You will do the green runs. You'll choose the elevator. Other people will do the stairs. And I'm already, I was already noticing that that was the case. And I thought 
I liked that, that it's like, well, you don't have to do this. And it's exactly the same as some of the elective orthopedic surgeries. Like you said, you don't have to, you can do a lot of strengthening to get around that. Will you necessarily get the function you're looking for? Probably not. But in the end, there's nothing saying it's black and white. Um, so that was well, something there's, 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 you're right. I mean, like, like a, if you tear your knee ligaments, you know, you could wear a brace yeah. uh, and you can choose not to go, to go downhill. Um, and then your, your knee works out pretty well, as long as you don't push do it, it for certain activities. Yeah. I think the other thing too, and I think the big thing that I hear about is also from mostly mothers who have this problem is a lot of maternal guilt. You know, there's oh. a lot of maternal guilt, which I think is, is uh, misplaced. You know, they feel like, why me? Did I, did I eat too much during pregnancy? Did I get mm-hmm. too big? Should I have tried harder? Um, and, and I think that's, that's for me, a really big message because because there's not a, you would never have maternal guilt if you ruptured your Achilles tendon, you know, and, and, and you'd never have guilt if you tore your knee ligaments. You'd be like, no, I tore my ligament in my knee. I mean, that's happens, right? So I think in that sense, I think just education for women to say, look, this is not your fault. I mean, this is not anything you did during pregnancy. I mean, the risk factors we know for women who are at risk of getting this condition, more than one pregnancy. So certainly two or three pregnancies, pregnancies over age 35, a twin pregnancy or a C-section, those are all factors that will increase the risk of getting a diastasis that's functionally limiting. So if you have one kid at 19, you're probably going to be okay. Uh, you'll have other problems potentially, but, but not this one. Um, but I think that if you forgot, and, and there's a lot of women who are you know, delaying childbirth for a variety of reasons, you know, a lot of professional women, a lot of women who are have pursuing careers, who have b- children in their mid to late 30s, and uh, C-section rates are quite high. And it's important even to consider like why C-sections, you know, wh- why is that a problem? You know, well, you know, in a C-section, there's a, a low transverse incision. We've seen that incision on the outside, just above the pubic hairline. But once that incision is made, the skin is elevated, you know, up to the belly button. And then those, those muscles are actually split surgically. So that linea alba, which is connected, is split surgically with a cautery as they enter, as they have to, you know, into the uterus to take the baby out. But very few uh, OBs will actually close the muscle on the way out. So once they deliver the baby, they close the uterus, close the peritoneal cavity, uh, only about 10 to 15% will actually repair the rectus muscles uh, before they close the skin. And so I've given a number of lectures to obstetricians talking about the importance of repairing that muscle layer. But there's a lot of hesitancy in doing that even because they go, what if I have future pregnancies? You know, that has to separate. We can't repair it. You know, it has to be able to come apart again. Um, you know, oh, that might cause pain or discomfort. So we're trying to educate even the people who at the beginning are, are causing some of the issue because we want to have a muscle repair. Um, but, uh, but that's why sections, you know, are, are more problematic. Um, but even just, you know, three kids or having a twin pregnancy can lead to those problems. And so you kind of touched on it already when you were talking about a family member, but what, what other things would bring, um, I mean, I came to you saying like, I just, not only does that do my, does my belly look different, but yes, I've got this weakness. And I guess I wonder, are the majority of women, and I think maybe this is because your affiliation with physios, you're probably seeing a lot of people coming in, um, complaining most about their functional limitations, but what else? Because I also want to, um, acknowledge that some people that's not their biggest thing. It's the aesthetics that bothers them most. And so could you speak to maybe that as well? And I get, I know your practice is probably different than everybody else's, but would you say that there's just as many women coming in saying like, I just don't look like how I look. 
Yeah, I mean, I think that it's a, it's a, it's, there, there's a two-pronged kind of um, issue. One is function, one is aesthetics. And, and the nice thing is, is that the repair a little bit uh, touches on both of those. So for people with functional uh, rectus diastasis, the primary focus is, is getting a good functional repair. And I think the secondary benefit is you actually tend to look a lot better afterwards. So, you know, the doming is caused by muscle separation. Um, one thing I talk to people about is that we have to get the, one of the things I've learned is we have to get the resting tension of the muscles just right. So when the muscles are separated and we want to bring them back together, we have to think of those muscles like being on a spring. They've separated, they've sprung back. So now we have to pull them back out and we have to put them back together in the midline. If we do that, we'll get the spring at the right tension and they can create tension in a circle. So you get your core strength. Now, if we want to create a better shape, we can actually overlap those muscles. We begin to sort of pull them together and overlap the muscles. And now your waistline gets narrower and narrower and your stomach becomes flatter and flatter. And so aesthetically it gets better, but functionally you begin to lose function because now you've, you've over tensioned the spring and you're not getting the right balance biomechanically. So then we have, so I tried that for a number of years, actually, about a year and a half, I overtension things and I wasn't getting the function. So because we know, people weren't happy with the appearance. They're saying, I just want to look, is what you say? No, they, they, they were ecstatic with the ex, uh, appearance because their waistline was narrower, the stomach was flatter. And that's something where from a cosmetic point of view, you might even do an overtension to get that overlap. So you get a very narrow waistline, but functionally it doesn't give you the best possible core strength. We weren't getting the same sort of, you know, post-surgical uh, strength in core. And so by getting just the right tension, though, you get better function, but you might not get as flat as you would with perhaps the ideal, like where the primary goal is aesthetics. Um, now, having said that, for a lot of women who need uh, functional muscle repair, while we're there, there's about, a half, about half the women have some concurrent liposuction to contour their shape, because we don't want to leave somebody with a result where they've got a flatter stomach, uh, a better contour, yet, yet now they have fullness around the sides, which looks disproportionate. So we have to create a, a shape which is pleasing. So creating an incision that goes from the, the rib cage going up and down, uh, which, you know, functionally may work, but aesthetically would be horrific. And so, you know, you also want to take consideration to actually making things look good. Uh, even, but the goal is usually functional. And I, I've, I have seen that actually, where I think probably the surgical goal was, um, like thinness or skinniness or, and, and I see them come in with, um, pelvic floor issues after they swear that the prolapse symptoms started after with an overpressure or le I started leaking after I had uh, my tummy tuck or what have you. And so I think that there's so many things that, um, I see kind of wrapped up in this and, yeah. and well, certainly, and, and, and one of the interesting side effects we've found is that if we get the right tension and get the correct core strength, uh, tension, the pelvic floor actually can improve a little bit. Mm -hmm. So what happens is, is that the, the core we think of as a circular muscle, but the diaphragm is at the top and the pelvic floor is at the bottom. If you have poor core strength, your pelvic floor will sag. It's not being able to pull up on anything because it's, it's weak. Once you get a good uh, core strength and you close that circle, now the pelvic floor has something to hang on to. It's like the hammock. Instead of being attached to, you know, willow trees is attached to an oak tree. It's more supportive. And so there's, you ask a question now about, you know, pre and post people who have maybe a little bit of leakage, you know, like 
you know, could you go on a trampoline? Like, oh, not really. You know, not like, you know what, that's a bit better, you know, even without pelvic floor surgery. So there's a lot of women I see who are seeing me, but also seeing pelvic floor specialists uh, talking about, you know, mild to moderate urinary incontinence when they say, which one should I do first? I usually say, look, do your mm -hmm. muscle first because you may go from, you know, mild symptoms to zero or moderate to mild. And that may be the tipping point where you think, look, I'm not going to do a pelvic floor operation. Totally. I would say that was some, that's something that I noticed little things. Like, again, I think my primary focus was the function, but every once in a while I walk by the mirror now, I'm like my belly's flat again, which is exciting. But I would also say that I'm noticing my pelvic floor just feels more on if, if I was to describe it. Yeah. Can and we? That's, and that's why surgically, again, I mean, people from a technique point of view, the idea of adding a piece of mesh, you know, in the center, um, just fails to address the biomechanics. You know, if you have yeah. mesh, if you're separated and you put a piece of mesh in between your springs are pulled back and they can't translate any tension. And so, you know, for things like, you know, someone doing a mesh repair for a diastasis is, is, you know, all that will do is stop you bulging, but it won't actually provide you any improvement in function. That's what I wanted you to talk about now is some of the difference in terms, because I think, um, and then we'll talk a little bit more about difference in surgical techniques, but there are a lot of terms thrown out. Like, for example, what, if you could speak to the difference between, for example, tummy tuck, abdominoplasty, mini tummy tuck, like muscle repair, like what, how do all of those terms fit in? Because I get a lot of questions and, and I find maybe if you can just kind of speak to those terms, um, because these people need to discuss these terms with their own surgeons and, and, and what their surgical techniques are, but, but the definitions will be the same. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think that there's the language that gets very confusing, you know, um, and I, I think language is important, but there's also, um, there's a lot of times where the people will use terms to separate themselves from others, but the terminology means nothing really, mm -hmm. you know? Um, and so if we think of, uh, I mean, tummy tuck and abdominoplasty are really interchangeable terms. Mm -hmm. So I would say abdominoplasty, the medical term, tummy tuck, perhaps the, the lay term, mm -hmm. you know, mini tummy tuck would be mini being less skin removed, typically also less muscle repair, but you can have, you know, what I would call modified abdominoplasty, which again, modifications of a full or modifications of a mini. Um, people talk about, uh, you know, muscle plication or muscle repair, but again, that's, there's many different methods to do a muscle repair. I mean, a muscle repair is pretty standard in every abdominoplasty, but again, it's, I guess it's the intention of the muscle repair, you know, the degree of tension, where you're repairing it. Um, uh, are you doing both aspects of the muscle? So one of the things that I learned with Diane is that we initially started doing just anterior muscle repair. And what that means is that I think of the abdominal wall, it has a thickness to it. Um, and the rectus muscles have a front edge and a back edge. Imagine like a, uh, you know, it has a front and a back. And we used to just do the front, front edge repair. And what we found is that we had great tension on the front edge of the muscle and that on the, as you go laterally, it connects to the external abdominal obliques. So we're getting great tension on the external obliques, but the internal obliques, we're getting no tension and the internal obliques have to connect to the deeper muscles. So again, after doing this for about a year with that method, we, we said we need to really connect the posterior edge. And so we sort of would start, you know, I sort of started connecting the posterior edge as well. And then we noticed as much better translation of power. So by doing a back edge repair and then a front edge repair, that's just a different technique that, that helps create the better tension. So 
I think the terminology though is, is variable. People will use terms to separate themselves from people other than the community. Um, um, but I think that the abdominoplasty is really, I think of it as the, as a cosmetic operation. Well, I think of, um, you know, rectus diastasis is, is sort of a functional operation, but everybody often needs a skin tailoring. Mm-hmm. Once you do a doming correction, you have excess skin. And if we've left it, then it, it looks wrong. Uh, it looks weird. Um, I did have a lady a number of years ago who was very adamant. Look, it's function, it's function. It's all about my function. I don't care how I look. And she's very adamant. And, and, and I said, look, I'm, I'm concerned that your skin's going to be redundant or excessive. She goes, look, do not touch my skin. It's just a functional operation. So I said, okay, you're honestly, you're in charge. We'll, we'll do that. So we did a functional muscle repair. We didn't address the skin at all. And six weeks later, she's back saying, what's with all the loose skin? I'm like, yeah, we talked about that. She's like, look, it looks terrible. Like, yeah. So we had to go back and, and, and adjust that. And that was my one case where really, you know, I realized that you have to some skin tailoring to a degree um, because your shape is so different afterwards. And I think our skin gives us so much tension as well, right? Like I think you'd be missing an outer layer of tension and support there if you didn't, like you said, correct that redundancy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so then maybe if we speak to different surgical techniques, because I think that that's people will listen to this, but then they need to go, you're going to decide which of those methods to use based on the person in front of you, obviously. However, um, if someone's going to see different surgeons for different consults, they might be told, you know, they'll be told possibly a different technique. And I'm guessing that's not only based on where you train, but in your experience, just on what you were seeing. And so I wonder if, like, if someone was listening to this, I think like not everyone has access to you, but I wonder, um, if you could just speak to, um, maybe why there are different techniques in general, and maybe just given like a, something, what, what, what they need to ask their surgeon, like, is it fair for them to ask, what is your technique or would you speak to that a little bit? For sure. I think some of the things uh, technically is that for people who have sort of functional uh, rectus diastasis symptoms, uh, and I would say people have doming, they have uh, secondary biomechanical lower back pain, uh, central vulnerability, uh, early morning bloating, where you say, I look pretty good in the morning, and then I have that first piece of toast and suddenly I'm bloated. It's like, what happened? And that's, and that's just a sign that, I mean, that's a normal symptom because, you know, as soon as you put food in your mouth in the morning, you're, you're, you make more saliva, your, your, your stomach makes more acid and your colon gets bigger, ready to accept food. And as soon as your colon distends, your stomach expands. And now you can see it because you don't have your muscles connected. So those are very typical symptoms. I think things that technically that I enforce to my residents, because when I do, uh, I'm sort of the director of the resident aesthetic clinic, but also um, I do a lot of the teaching for the faculty with the residents and I say, look, some of the elements you have to do is if you're going to do a, a muscle repair, use a permanent suture. So we know that 40% of people will fail at five years if you use a dissolving stitch. So pick a suture, which is a permanent suture. So there's a variety of permanent suture options and surgeons know which those are. There are some that are softer, some of them are firmer, but essentially you have to have a permanent stitch and most will use a permanent stitch, but not all. Secondly, you get the repairs got to go from top to bottom. So even if you have a diastasis, which involves only the middle third, of your stomach. And there are women who have what I call mixed symptoms where they say they're connected to the top, they're connected at the bottom, but the middle third around the belly button is where the diastasis is. You better repair top to bottom because if you just correct the middle third, you're, you may get some extension of your diastasis above and below your repair. So connect top to bottom. 
Um, I think also there are some cases, and it's variable, where there's also some muscle separation between the obliques and the rectus. So that is lateral to the oblique muscle. And again, that's uncommon, but I think it's important to look at because if you have muscle separation there, a central correction won't allow your muscle tension to pass through the obliques. So in those cases, you better do a repair between the obliques as well. And I think sort of the technique that I've really established that works well for me and, and for a lot of my clients is that posterior muscle repair. The idea of making sure you, you grab the posterior rectus sheath and, and repair those. Now, a lot of people say like, that's, that can't be done or it's, un, it's dangerous, but really it's not, you know, with, with proper eversion and, and care, you can repair the posterior sheath. And then that gives a better functional repair. Uh, aesthetically, um, an anterior repair will, will do the job. It'll narrow your waistline, but if you want a functional repair, you got to do the posterior sheath. And um, one of the things that I remember asking you about is because I'd hear a lot of people say, you know, will they use a continuous stitch or an interrupted stitch? And I, you kind of explained to me, well, why don't you explain what your technique is? Because it sounds like there's huge variations in this as well. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think that there are, whether you use like, you know, it's like sewing, right? I mean, I think mm -hmm. it's if you're, if you're going to be sewing something together, you know, will you use multiple small stitches or will you use like one long running stitch? And I think anybody who's ever sewn on a button knows if you use one long continuous stitch and it breaks, you're in trouble because the whole thing is going to come apart. So, so we actually use a, I call it triple stitch technique. So we use interrupted stitches on the back edge, interrupted stitches on the front edge, and then we over sew the whole thing one more time. So it's sort of triple sewn. So um, we have had two clients, both men who have ruptured their sutures on the first day post-surgery and never had a woman pop. But I think that uh, two men have, you know, early on due to vomiting or nausea after surgery, like within an hour or two after finishing where they were retching and they, they broke open, but those are very different kind of clients. These are tend to be men with diastasis, which can occur interestingly, mm -hmm. uncommonly, but can, and they tend to be like over 200 pound men. So I think that's, I've not seen that in, in, in a female cohort, but I think that sort of interrupted uh, triple stitch is the way to go because it provides a lot of redundancy. There's a lot of women who will say like, look, I was told I can't lift my baby for six to eight weeks after surgery, which is like absolutely ridiculous. Like the thought of like, you know, I've got three kids. The, the thought the mother's not going to lift the baby for six to eight weeks is not real realistic in any sense. And the repair can't be so delicate that you can't right. do that. I mean, it has to be vigorous. So uh, people say, well, when can I lift the baby? It's like when you feel comfortable, because really it's not that delicate a repair. It's very vigorous. Um, it has to withstand you lifting a baby for you know, 15, 20 or 25 pound baby. So, you know, I think those things are, are um, the thought of not lifting a baby for eight weeks is kind of crazy. Well, that's good to know. I definitely was that person after the day after retching and throwing up and thinking like, I just have to have faith that this is strong. I just have to have faith that this is strong because I was like, there's nothing I can do. Yeah. Um, and so I remember you say that was in my head. Nobody's ever ruptured. I'm like, yeah, I'm not going to be that person. I'm not. Yeah. So no, that's always no, no females ever ruptured. Yes. Um, how much do you talk to people beforehand about things like, uh, we already talked about it. I actually had a physio reach out to me saying that she had just seen you for a consult and she, you had said to her, um, you know what? I want you to do some more physio before. And I was like, awesome. It's, you didn't say no to surgery, but you're like, I just think you could optimize some of these things before. Mm -hmm. So, um, 
I obviously know that you do some of that. And I think it's probably to improve outcomes or improve their satisfaction after. But what about things like smoking, weight loss? Like how much do you have to encourage people to do things like that before for outcomes? Because I think that's something I want to get to next is um, the outcomes. Yeah, I think I think the elements that um, I think it's a three pronged uh, issue. So I, I say pick your surgeon, pick your patient and pick your facility. So pick your facility is perhaps the easiest part of it because facilities are very well regulated in British Columbia. So if this goes across the country, almost everywhere in Canada, the facilities are very well regulated. The colleges uh, maintain a very high standard. And in fact, I think the standard in non-hospital facilities is higher than in the hospital even. So I think pick the facility is is important, but I think it's it's not a worry for most Canadians. I think in the U.S. there is a lot of variability uh, in states like Florida, in the Deep South, and some parts of California. There is a little bit of the facilities are are less well regulated, so I think that's more of a worry. But I think in Canada you're safe. I think the second thing is pick the patient, and that's sort of my job is pick the patient. So you know, pick the winners. Um, so smoking is a non-starter. So if you're a smoker, you shouldn't have the surgery. Um, you will have a bad outcome with respect to wound healing. You'll have a complication, almost guaranteed. So I tell patients they have to be off cigarettes for three months before and two months after. So, and that's a long time if you're a smoker. Um, so three months before, two months after, not smoking. If you smoke, you will have a complication guaranteed. There are some things that are not correctable. You know, So for example, let's say you have type two diabetes and you're controlled with diet or medication. Let's say you have hypertension and you take a medication for this. So you have a thyroid dysfunction, you take medication for that. Those are really non-correctable things. But for example, if you have diabetes, you better have well-controlled diabetes because if your hemoglobin A1C is over eight, we're not gonna do your surgery because your, your, uh, your levels are just too high. So. So I think if you have a stable medical condition, which is being managed, that's fine. Um, but if you have something which is you know, a medical condition, which makes anesthetic, not, not risky, but you know, if you've got a, a, a heart condition, for example, I did a lady recently who um, had a pacemaker. She had a pacemaker put in her 20s and she came to me in her 30s for this operation. I said, look, we, we can't do this in a non-hospital facility. We got to do this in the hospital because you've got a condition which makes you not safe for a non-hospital facility. So you can still get it done, but it goes back to, you know, pick your patient, pick your facility, make sure they're doing it at a place where it's safe for you to have surgery. And the last thing is pick your surgeon. You know, I think you want to pick somebody who has expertise in this operation. Um, I think that a lot of surgeons will do abdominoplasty, but you kind of want to get somebody who is not a, I would call a recreational abdominoplasty surgeon. You know, uh, I mean, I think it does, it does speak to it. How many do you do? It's actually a fair question to be What's honest. reasonable? I actually wouldn't even know. I was, I, I was talking with someone else that was your, that you, you did the surgery for. And she mentioned that to quote me if I'm, or tell me if I'm wrong, but she said, I think he does like 50 a year. At least. Yeah. Is that a lot? That's a yeah, lot. Yeah. A lot. Yeah. Okay. So what yeah, would no, be, I mean, I think that's a lot. I mean, I think that you're looking at somebody who you want to, you want to talk to somebody who does a fair number of these operations. Um, so that you know that totally. they, they've really refined their technique, you know, and, and they're, it's not somebody who, who does, you know, one a month. So honestly, if you're doing eight to 10 a month, eight to 10, sorry, eight to 10 a year, that to me feels like a very low number. Okay. Um, you know, if you're doing 20 plus or 30 plus a year, then you're doing a lot of them. Uh, but I think then, you know, it's very difficult to get, um, 
so uh, there's a lot of patient confidentiality, obviously, right? So, you know, if you're going to pick a general contractor, you can always ask for references and talk to the person who, who has used that general contractor before to do the renovation, but that doesn't happen in medicine. We can't give out names of clients who, right. who've had surgery with us to, so people can call them. It doesn't work. So, so I think a lot of these sort of, you know, the best referrals are word of mouth, you know, how is your experience? How is the outcome? Um, those are the, really the best referrals. Um, I did a lot of that when, when I was looking, when I was, I was trying to decide or find every reason not to do this. Um, and so I, people who, people who, there are some people I see who have what I would call, you know, uh, mixed conditions where they have a partial diastasis. Um, and I think, geez, you know, it's a big surgery. Will you benefit from it? You know, and you, you know, your problem is, is mild to moderate and your symptoms are mild to moderate. Then it's like, you know, you can still do it, but it's going to be, is it worthwhile given the time, the energy, the expense, the downtime, the risk? Uh, and so sometimes for those people, I'd say, look, let's, let's optimize you with physiotherapy and we'll see what your deficits are. And then you can make an informed decision whether you want to go ahead. Yeah. Um, in all my looking around though, I asked lots of different physios that were seeing your post-op clients and everything. And I never heard one person that was saying, I wish I wouldn't have. Everybody has said best decision I ever made. And so along the way and the appointments that I had with you and anything leading up to it, I never found any reason not to. Um, so I've always appreciated that. I wonder if you could really quickly speak to, um, um, are there people or how often do you say then that you're having outcomes that maybe aren't favorable? Like would people saying like, I just never got over the wound healing, or I hated the look of my scar. or I didn't like the look of my belly, or I never got the funk. How often would you say anecdotally that that happens? Yeah. I mean, I think thankfully not that often, you know, I mean, I think that to be fair, I also don't offer surgery to everybody I see, you know, right. I probably turn away about, um, 15% of all people I see. Um, maybe one in six, I say, I, I don't think we should do the surgery for a variety of reasons, be it either medical, psychological, uh, functional. And so pick the winners, you mm -hmm. know, I mean, pick people who you think are going to get a great outcome and you tend to have uh, a good outcome. Um, there are complications. Absolutely. So I think it's important that people know that this is not, it's, it's an operation, you know, it's a major surgery. It's one of the bigger surgeries that we do. I mean, there are risks people have to worry about anesthesia, you know, but the chance of really, you know, not waking up from the anesthetic is literally one in a million. So I think anesthesia is really the least concern, but it is the one that it can have the worst outcome, but that's why you pick the facility, right? The facilities, if you're well monitored, you're going to do fine. Uh, infection rates, uh, infections can occur. The infection rates about one in a hundred. So we give pre-surgical antibiotics through the IV, but the chance of getting an infection is about one in a hundred. So I get one every two years that you get some infection. Never had anybody hospitalized afterwards with infection, but certainly can happen. Bleeding, a bit of spotting can occur, uh, but significant bleeding is uncommon. But again, it can occur about one in a hundred. So once every two years, which is why everybody gets my cell phone number. Call me if there's a problem. Don't just don't see your GP first to call me first for everything, because I'd rather get a text message in the middle of the night. That's not a problem than having people have a problem and not and, you know, fall through the cracks. Um, there is some numbness for sure in the lower half of the stomach, like anybody who's at a C-section, there's some numbness there. That numbness is going to last for months, may last for even years, and may be permanent, but it tends to be a fairly small area eventually that takes a while to get to there. And then there's a scar. So there is a low scar, and there's a scar which for most people is very good. There are some subclasses of people who are 
perhaps uh, African-American or Asian and are prone to keloid. And so we do have a variety of things. We do both in surgery and after surgery to help minimize keloid scarring um, or bad scarring, but a scar does exist. And so we have to accept there will be a scar. Um, the belly button appearance is something we spent a lot of time trying to create a great belly button, but honestly, there is no great belly button. It's always a surgical belly button. And we have entire seminar series talking about how to make a nice looking belly button. I think it was, that's a struggle. My technique keeps evolving. I think I've every year and a half, I do a new technique trying to make it better. And it's an evolution. Yeah, I would, I would say like at the beginning, I, I was like, oh, I don't like the looks of this. But as it heals, I'm um, four weeks post now. And as it heals, I feel like it looks better and better. I think yeah. you did a good job. Yeah. My last question, which I know a lot of people are interested in, is just has to do with having to pay for the surgery. And so um, I know you also work privately, so things are a little bit different. But just really quickly, could you cover that topic? Because I know you probably get asked that by, by everybody. Well, for sure. Yeah. No, I mean, I think that the insurance component is important because, you know, in the Canadian healthcare system, the vast majority of things are insured services, you know, and so your Achilles tendon repair that I talked about earlier, your ACL rupture, those are all insured services and they're covered by medical. And for whatever reason, it's, this is just not an insured service. You know, they have a list of things that they'll cover. There's a list of things that they don't cover. And it seems kind of unfortunate or unfair, but if we really think about what healthcare covers, there's a lot of things they don't cover, you know? So eyeglasses, for example, like we all need glasses. Glasses are important. I, I can't see without glasses yet. We pay for our glasses. We pay for our hearing aids. We pay for our walking aids. We pay for physiotherapy. I mean, there's a lot of things. If I have uh, somebody who I do a, 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 has an injury, they need physio, they got to pay for the physio afterwards, you know? So for a variety of reasons, it's just not an insured service. We've petitioned the government to see whether they would cover rectus repair. And their reply mostly has been like from an any insurance company, no. Or if we do cover it, what do you guys wanna not cover anymore? So essentially, if you wanna add this to the list, we need cost certainty. So what do you wanna take off the insured list? So we're like, well, we still want to cover breast reconstruction after breast cancer. We still want to cover burn treatment. We still want to cover cleft lip and palate and pediatrics. Like I don't yeah. want to take anything off the list. I want to add this on. And they say, well, look, it's cost certainty. We, if we're going to add something on, we got to take something off. So it, it's something which unfortunately won't be an insured service. There are components, for example, like about half of the women who have rectus diastasis also have an umbilical hernia. Mm -hmm. uh, and so you know, the umbilical hernia repair is an assured service, but it's such a minor component of the much bigger operation that it often is just thrown in there and, and done. And we tend not to even bill medical for it. It's actually, it gets complicated with the Canada Health Act in terms of billing people for combined operations. But, but unfortunately, the government of Canada just won't, won't pay for it. Uh, I mean, they see it a little bit like old school. It's a consequence of pregnancy, um, just like loose skin would be, or, or maybe, you know, breasts that are too low. Um, whatever that condition is post-pregnancy, it's not an insured service. Um, so we've tried and it's, it's, it's come against the wall. Is that where, I don't know if this happens as much in Canada, but I think this happens in the U S is that why sometimes I've heard of, um, because a general, if it, you said combined surgery, like you're talking, it'd be plastics combined with general surgery. Is that, is that what you mean? You mean with respect to the hernia? 
Yeah. With respect to the hernia, like, cause I hear a lot of people saying like, well, if I have the general surgeon repair my hernia and then the plastic surgeon does my muscle repair, then at least I can have some of it covered. And mm. cause I think what's happening sometimes is that a, a general surgeon will just do all of it. Yeah. Um, I don't know if in Canada, any general surgeons are doing all of this. I mean, there are general surgeons, correction, who are doing muscle repair. Um, I mean, I used to get, when I first started in the early 2000s, a general surgeon in to help fix with the, uh, a hernia. And you realize, to be honest, it's a fairly straightforward operation. And some of the things that they were doing, I didn't agree with, you know, like, for example, if you get a general surgeon in to fix your umbilical hernia, they're, they're dollars to donuts, they're going to put in a mesh, you know, they're going to want to put in the mesh, because that's what general surgeons do for hernias, they put mesh in there. And I'm like, look, I don't want mesh in there. I don't want foreign material. Um, so let me just fix it my way. And so I just do umbilical hernia repair. I do a ventral hernia repair. And it's something that you have to be able to fix yourself, to be honest, because um, you know, relying on another surgeon to do that, A, it's very challenging to coordinate two surgeon schedules. Um, and you want to make sure that the person you're seeing is most responsible for all the work, because I don't want it to be done with mesh. Um, in terms of, you know, deduction and cost, you know, there are, depends on where you are, whether it's done in a, in a private facility or a hospital, there's different fees. Uh, some places will do the surgery in hospital, others with a, in non-hospital facilities. I think it depends a little bit on the province and the facility. So for example, you can't do in, in, in Vancouver, at least you can't do private surgery in, in publicly funded hospitals. So, you know, unless you have a serious medical condition that demands you have to go to a hospital for medical safety, you can't do any private surgery in the hospital. So the cost is what the cost is through the facilities, which include, you know, nursing fees, anesthetic fees, facility fees, disposable fees. So the number you see is not the surgical fee. It's sort of usually tends to everything. be the, the everything fee, the all in the, the all in uh, vacation. Um, so it covers everything. Maybe just really quickly give a ballpark on for people listening, like just a range. What could pe what would people expect to pay, let's say in Canada for this surgery? For sure. And I think it depends in Canada, it depends on where you are. So of course, like the cost of housing in Abbotsford or Winnipeg, it's very different than Vancouver, uh, even just because of OR rental costs. So, you know, I think that on the, on the low end, you're not going to get under 10,000. So I think that 10,000 probably would be the starting point for the, for most people. And I think it depends on, elements will be patient size, you know, I mean, a bigger person takes longer, you know, so if you're a bigger person, if, if you're going to need more suture, it takes longer, you rent the room by the minute. So if you can finish that surgery in two hours versus three and a half, it's going to be cheaper. So everyone's not going to get the same cost for the same repair. Um, if you're in a city center, it's going to cost a bit more. If you're in the periphery, it's going to be a bit less. Um, but it's typically going to be, you know, my guess is for most people between 12 and, and 14,000. Um, there are maybe some exceptions where people are going above $16,000. But I think then um, that becomes more of a surgical price list than what the cost of the surgery is becoming. So I think, you know, if you said in my head, you know, 12 to 15, that's probably going to be the vast majority of individuals. Awesome. Well, that's, you know, that was definitely one of the cons. I just couldn't picture spending that much money, but to, you know, um, in the end it's, it's money behind me now. And I like the biggest reason I chose this was for my future and the longevity of my body. And, um, I can honestly say, um, I don't have any regrets. Um, 
I've really appreciated everything that you have explained to me. I've appreciated everything that you and your team have done. And I, I would give you, you know, any, any, I would help you provide any reviews if you need, um, you know, to help any of your future clients. Um, and yeah, I've, I've been really satisfied. So thank you. And one of the things too, where, you know, I mean, I think that it goes back to the maternal guilt that I talked about earlier. There's a lot of uh, women who are mothers who do, who really don't do things that are only for themselves anymore. Right. I mean, almost always the things that you choose to do if be a vacation or a renovation or a change, it benefits the whole family, you know, the whole family to some degree will benefit things. And this is really not about, this is really about you. This is really about, it's a very personal decision. And it's all about the decision that you make based on your body and your function. Um, and, And that's why, again, maternal guilt comes in because they think, am I crazy doing this? Because, you know, A, I'm putting myself at risk. You know, mm-hmm. um, is that a good, a good thing to do with small kids at home? And it's a lot of money. It absolutely is a lot of money. And, and it's something where people think, what else could we spend this money on? Disneyland, and, right? Like- <laughs> absolutely. And that, which again, is for the whole family, right? Yes. And so this is one of those things that's really just, uh, just about the person. So I think maternal guilt uh, comes into play. But I always think that, you know, honestly, that it, it's something where for the right person, it, it makes the right decision, but it's a very personal decision. Totally. Um, and I, I just also wanted to say like, thanks on behalf of our profession, I think on the physiotherapy profession, because I appreciate that you've been willing to collaborate because I think that, I don't know, I think it makes a big difference, um, to make, you know, looking at things holistically, anything else that I didn't ask that you think is important for the audience to hear? I think you've covered a lot of the topics, you know, I mean, I think that there's an entire community out there that, that talks with each other, either through Facebook or other communities that, you know, podcasts and other things that I don't appreciate that are out there. Um, and I think, you know, just coming in for an opinion with somebody doesn't mean you have to sign up for the surgery, you know, and I think you get a good sense of uh, people are pretty smart. You know, you go and talk to somebody, you get a consultation, you talk to them and you follow your gut, you know, you'll know if it's the right thing and you'll know if it's the wrong thing nothing wrong with getting two or three opinions. People see me and I often will say, look, have you had a second opinion? You should maybe get a second opinion as well, because you want people to, um, you would never commit to a big renovation with one, one quote, one opinion, unless you fix, like, I know that person, that's just the way to go. So, um, but it's a big decision. Absolutely. And, uh, but I think that it's, we're way ahead now than we were uh, 10, 15 years ago. Um, So I think we're making progress. Absolutely. And that's a wrap. I hope you've enjoyed the episode and have taken something valuable away. Please take the time to rate and review the podcast. And if you'd like more information about my online program to support women during pregnancy, birth prep, and postpartum recovery, check out my website, mommyberries.com. I'll see you next time.